Stephen Palmer's Hairy London, episode 15. Velvine stared at Bertrand. The crate, little more than six inches long, was the deadly yellow-banded species. Bertrand was a goner. Velvine jumped forward, snapped the trunk of the bonsai tree, then sped out of the room, running at top speed to the elephant enclosure, where, for a few moments, he stumbled around in panic, unable to locate the Machinora. Then he bumped into it. He leapt inside the wicker capacity, fired up the heteryx and cast off. Moments later, he ascended above the corral to safety. This time, events did not bring tears to his eyes. Shock enervated him. A black mood came to his mind as he considered all the terrible things he'd seen, and he realized he wanted no more a violent revolution. He was a changed man, with a new view of himself and of society he'd once inhabited. But now he had finished with upheaval and bloody action. He had a wager to win. Tacking against the wind, the chameleonic Archimedean floating system carried him back to Gordon Square. He found the four remaining members of the raiding party sitting about their typewriter, hard at work, with Sylvia Fermicelli dictating. Well, I bring tragic news, he said. Sylvia's dark eyes stared, unblinking at him. She was a striking young woman, half Ethiopic, Velvine suspected, and decent for a woman, though rather too forward for his liking. What's happened? she asked, approaching him. Lord Blackenor got Bertrand. He is dead. The Marxist-Leninist workers' movement of London is over. It is undone. I'm so very sorry. Sylvia buckled as she heard the news, clinging on to a chair. The others wailed and gasped. <laughs> I cannot remain here, Velvine continued. I thank you for your kindness to me, but I must go. I have a mission of my own, one more personal than yours, that, having met you, I can now undertake. I thank you once more for starting me on my journey. He shrugged. I wish you the very best of British luck, eh? Yes, Sylvia murmured. Velvine walked to his box room, where he gathered his belongings and threw them into the rucksack. Then he went to put the clay figure on its trolley. It had changed further. In pale moonlight, he saw the ghost of a face, a woman's face, and a hint of, well, they looked like those glands specific to women best not to mention in polite company. The hips were broader, the shoulders narrower, the thighs rounder. Great oats, Velvine whispered. Whatever will I do now? The figure required clothes at once. Unwilling to ask Sylvia or the two other women for assistance, Velvine manhandled the figure to his bed and dressed it in an old pair of trues. Then a mildew blackened shirt 
and a jacket of canvas, such as cricketers wore. Then he raised it to its feet. The figure stood without wobbling, as if it perfectly balanced on its shapely feet. Velvine hauled it out onto the trolley, then headed for the door and the roof. Sylvia stopped him beside the attic steps. Where are you going? she asked. I do not know, he replied. Gesturing upwards, he said, To load my machinora, then depart. That is all I can say. What's this personal mission you mentioned? Well, that is rather tricky to explain. It involves plumbing the depths of the human mind in pursuit of a wager. Beyond your capacities, dear lady. Is it? Sylvia replied. Velvine hesitated, then coughed. <clears throat> oh, well, I expect so. If you're interested in the mind, you should see Mr. Freud. Mr. Freud? The psychonaut. He lives in the Hampstead. Velvine harumphed and muttered, Possibly I underestimated your knowledge of such matters. Thank you anyway for those directions. Sylvia's gaze turned to the figure. Who is she? I do not know. A, a project of mine. Uncomfortable with such personal questions, he lifted the figure and pushed it up into the attic. Goodbye. We shall not meet again. And as I said before, I wish you and all Marxist-Leninists luck. And me a you, Sylvia replied. The winds blew still to the northwest. Velvine cast off, using the Machinora rudders to head for Hampstead. The weeks passed by inside Kew Gardens. Three weeks, as Gandhi had said. Then, Estatia and Cornucope were taken from their luxury cell to a palm glade at the north end of the glasshouse, where Gandhi had his personal residence. After chai and a light snack of Gajakal Halwa, he said, The time has come for us to make a move on Downing Street. All my forces are ready. Estatia began to fret. With her handbag impounded, she'd been unable to send any more warning letters, while the lack of any attack on Kew Gardens suggested the Prime Minister and his cabinet were little concerned by her last missive. If only she had stated the three-week timing. But surely police officers, even soldiers, were watching Kew. It was inconceivable that the government would ignore the Hindu peril. Most likely a ring of heavily armed men surrounded the place, ready to bring down the machines and the Hindu themselves. And that three-week lack of letters... She sighed. In hairy London nothing was easy, least of all if it involved travel. Bland Hubble, she suspected, would wait and do nothing. Do not fret, Estatia, Gandhi said. There will be no danger for you. In fact, you, Cornucope, and I will have the most interesting of times as we head northeast. We are going with you, she said. Cornucope added, 
You mean to incorporate us into your forces? There will be no need for force, Gandhi said, enunciating the word as if it was a curse. Do you see an army inside Kew Gardens? I see metal machines on lakes, Estatia retorted. Do you see guns? Well, no, she said. I am a subtle man, said Gandhi. Subtly violent, that is. You may call me thuggish if you wish. I should take it as a compliment. No, indeed, there will be no fighting. You two and I will fly upon a winged goddess where we shall use your... And here, he pointed at Cornucope, personal rapport to fool the Prime Minister into contracting the Anglo-side germs. He will then pass the disease on to his colleagues as if it were a dose of the common cold. Cornucope frowned. I would never betray my government like that. You will if I torture your wife. Cornucope turned white. You are a monster, a bastard monster. First correct, second incorrect. Gandhi responded with a laugh. I know both my parents. Cornucope spat upon the floor. The king should have cut off more than your hands. He should have emasculated you, sir. At this, Gandhi's face turned ruddy, and the tentacles on his left hand writhed. You will regret saying that when I sit in number ten, he growled. There will be harsh punishments. He paused, then chuckled and said, Maybe I shall cause a black hole of Bloomsbury to be constructed. What do you think of that, Cornucope Weatherby of the so-called Suicide Club? Estatia reached out to touch Cornucope's arm in an effort to calm him. Let the man have his say, she whispered. Cornucope frowned, but said nothing more. Gandhi stood up. It is time to depart. Everything is ready. Follow me and do everything I tell you. If you refuse, or if you try to outwit me, I shall kill you with this derringer. He took out a small wide-ball gun from a fold in his dhoti. "'Yes, yes, we understand,' Cornucope said with a sigh. "'The gun is mightier than the word.' "'So, you do have guns,' Estatia said. "'Just the one,' he replied with a smile. They were taken alongside a thuggish escort to a platform that had been constructed near Sion House.' upon which stood an immense bronze statue of Kali, such as Eustatia had seen in the secret places of Mumbai. At the Durga's feet, a number of upturned skull pans had been welded, eight feet in diameter, in which cushions lay arranged. Beneath Kali lay her tiger vehicle. Her breasts were purest lapis lazuli, while her contumacy was implied by the sharpened flutes that she carried. We designed this in association with Konstantin Tsiolkovsky, Candy said. Who? The Russian scientist, superior to Fleming. Now get inside the skull pans. This they did. Eustatia and Cornucope in one, while Gandhi took another, arranging himself in a decadent pose on the Madras yellow silk cushions. Estatia found a box of Turkish deliciousness on a ledge at the side of the skull pan, which he opened and sampled. What now? she asked. Gandhi replied, We shall fly to Downing Street. 
There, Konyuko will use his influences to get inside number 10, pretending that he has captured me. He patted the satin satchel that he wore across his naked chest. The Anglo-side is safe, he added. But they won't believe Konyukup's story, said Eustacia. No prisoner would be taken there. Konyukup will explain that the Prime Minister wishes to interview me about home rule, Gandhi replied. I will pretend to be his prisoner. I am a very good actor, you know. But whatever happens, you will get me inside number ten. If you do not... Very well, Eustacia muttered. With that, Gandhi gave the signal for the Durga to be vivified, whereupon the multitude of her hands began flapping like the wings of birds, and they rose. And Kali was a good aeronaut, her black eyes flashing in the sun as she scoured the air around. Gandhi's round lens spectacles also flashed in the sun, but still brighter was his smile. For a while, the flight of the Durgo was calm, until they hit some turbulence. Eustacia grasped the sides of the skull pan, feeling sick. Gandhi called out, Do not panic! Eustacia, peering northeast into the city, replied, What are those Archimedean floating systems up ahead? Gandhi turned to look, then cursed in Urdu. Apke mas makma mani wali davi hai. What did he say? Konyuko asked. He's asking for a mosquito repellent. It's a traditional insult to our engineering abilities. The CAD. Estacia pointed to the two nearest Archimedean floating systems from whose willow baskets poked the muzzles of revolvers. Gandhi, you will be fired upon if you trespass through the air, she called out. Central London is protected. Land this Machinora as soon as you can. But he refused to listen, using the Lotus Blossom controls to pilot away through the barrage of Archimedean floating systems. Bullets whizzed by. Eustacia and Cornucope hid in the bottom of their skull pan, frightened for their lives. But Gandhi seemed exhilarated by the chase and the danger, screaming for joy. He's a madman, Cornucope groaned. We'll be pulverized to dams and jam on the earth below. We're not dead yet, Eustacia said, gripping the side of the skull pan. He really can fly this terrible machinora. Kali Durga span, dropped and soared, until she escaped every one of the enemy. Downing Street was now but a mile away, Westminster Cathedral approaching. Victoria Railway Station below. Eustacia began to wonder if Gandhi's plan might work. Minutes later, they descended, landing with a bump in the rear garden of number 10. The eyes of the Durga faded and her multiplicity of hands dropped, hissing as they expelled the Zulu vapors. The air filled with the scent of Nag Champa incense. A burly policeman walked out into the garden, calling, Hoi! You there! Cornucope, with no other choice, took Gandhi to his side and effected an arm-twist lock, so that it appeared Gandhi was in his power. I have the man for you, he shouted. Bring out the Prime Minister! The policeman halted. Eustacia saw that Gandhi concealed in one hand the derringer 
The policeman said, Who the devil are you? I am Cornucope Weatherby of the Suicide Club, and I have captured the rogue Nohandas Gandhi, the vile, stinking, weak, arrogant, wretched, cowardly, feeble-minded, deluded, murderous, and above all, impuissant rogue Gandhi. Fetch Lord George. The policeman turned to run into the building. They waited. Then Gandhi whispered, Stay where you are, Cornucope. Move and I will shoot you. I cannot miss at this range. Cornucope said nothing. Gandhi glanced over his shoulder at Eustacia. You stay motionless also. From the corner of her eye, Eustacia saw a figure emerge from the back door. My Kiriji, she replied. Up kid kidney behind hein. Gandhi frowned, staring at her, and Cornucope used his momentary advantage. Jumping to one side, he yelled, Shoot! before rolling away. Eustacia ducked as the policeman took out his pistol, but Gandhi also leapt aside, then pointed his derringer at Cornucope and fired. Cornucope screamed, lay still. There was a second shot, and Gandhi screamed to fall to the floor, blood on his chest. He writhed, tried to sit up, tried to pull out the contents of the satin satchel, but Eustacia ran forward, then jumped and wrestled him to the ground, grabbing the derringer and throwing it away. The policeman fired again. Eustacia heard the bullet hit Gandhi's chest. Screaming, she rolled away. Then, silence. Silence apart from the distant cawing of ravens. Eustacia sat up and stared at Cornucope. He did not move. Lord Gorge appeared. At once, there was a blur of motion in the garden. The policeman ran to Cornucope, rolling him over, then pulled off his jacket. He breathed still, he cried. Fetch an ambulance, sir. Lord Gorge took a calling dove from his frock coat pocket and spoke into it. Downing Street? Emergency. Ambulance. What? What? Ambulance. But Cornucope did not move. You have been indulging in episode 15 of Stephen Palmer's Hairy London, narrated by R.D. Watson.